Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, Katie. Hey, Ashley. So on today's episode, we're going to be talking about what is diet and fitness culture and how complicated and often toxic the concepts of health, wellness, and fitness can be. And, you know, I can't believe we're almost at the end of the year, but uh, here we are. And I don't know if you've noticed it yet, but uh, this is the time of year that we're often inundated with messages about New Year's resolutions and eating healthy for the holidays. And we're getting it even more than usual, you know, staying healthy, losing weight, getting into shape and achieving our dream bodies for 2018 because this is the year we're going to be our best selves, right? And our best selves are skinny, right? Exactly. So you and I have participated directly in some of the institutions that perpetuate these often problematic messages about bodies, especially women and girls' bodies. So why don't we start there? What are your thoughts on diet and fitness culture? Yeah, I thought it was important for both of us to have like a kind of confessional, if you want to call it that, Mm -hmm. of how we ourselves participate in it. And it's not all bad, right? But there are definitely problematic aspects to the kind of work that we do. So my confession is that I am a group fitness junkie. I have been since I was in my early teens when I discovered step aerobics back in the day with like Jane Fonda moves um, and the pink risers (laughs) and all of that. I just, I loved that. Um, And I grew up taking dance classes, so it was a really smooth transition for me to go into a choreographed step class. Uh, And I've pretty much kept up with fitness trends ever since then. Kickboxing, remember the Tybo at home videos? Oh, yeah. yeah, I remember Tybo. Tybo, and then (laughs) cycle class, uh, and then yoga, uh, Zumba, all kinds of stuff. And I really can't get enough of it. I really am somebody who is fortunate to love fitness and and being in community doing that. So just recently I became a certified group fitness instructor. uh, And now I'm on the other side of all of that because I'm teaching people how to move and hopefully how to be safe and enjoy themselves, hopefully. And I feel this huge responsibility now for other people. Whereas before when I was taking a class, I was really only worried about my own fitness goals Mm-hmm. I wasn't really paying attention to anybody else or what they were doing. But now I have to expend most of my energy on making sure folks are taking care of themselves. And all I can do is encourage them to do that. I can't actually make them do anything. And I've been frustrated already just to see how many people move unsafely or push themselves too much. Yeah. And I don't have a lot of power to do anything other than to encourage them to do something different. So that's been a pretty big adjustment for me. Although there's great stuff about it too. I love motivating people and being in front of folks. But the hardest part for me, in addition to seeing people move unsafely, is hearing women beat themselves up over their bodies. Yeah. I see women in these classes who are in excellent physical shape. I mean, they're doing an hour of high-intensity cardio or they're lifting heavy weights, doing push-ups, And they'll come up to me afterward and they'll want to talk about how fat they feel. Like that's the thing they want to Mm -hmm. talk about. And I was so surprised at first that that was what they wanted to talk about. Um, I didn't really know what to say. So I 
try to emphasize what their bodies are are capable of. Like, look at what you just did. Yeah. Look at how strong you are. Look at how much endurance you have. You know, so many folks are not exercising and here you are coming in, you know, several days a week, but all they see is a body that they want to change. And I mean, I can relate to that, you know, to be honest, I'm in my mid thirties now, right? Like I've had a baby. Um, my body is not the same as it was when I was in my early twenties or like when I was getting into shape for my wedding, like so many of us do. Um, so I can relate. I, I find myself wishing that I could have the body I had when I was younger. Um, so in lots of ways yes. I relate to them. Yeah. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So I can Me relate too. to what they're what they're saying and like just wanting to talk about how how fat they feel and I think that's why it's in part hard to hear because it sounds like my own inner critic. So I'm hearing it other yeah. women say it back to me, which is really hard. And I found it's challenging to resist these really unhealthy ways of thinking about our bodies because we're inundated with messages all the time like you were talking about at the beginning that we're never going to be good enough just as we are. Yeah, this is so complicated, right? And um, it's it's complicated for me uh, because I've, I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I am I started my career as a registered dietitian. I have been a trained and licensed dietitian for over 10 years now. I actually just had my 10-year um, reunion with my uh, fellow interns in my dietetic internship program. Hmm, that's great. And um, yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome. There are some really, really cool women that I uh, went through that program with, and it's really been a joy to follow their careers. Um, but I feel like it might help to talk about my career journey a little bit um, before I kind of share my perspective on fitness and diet culture because Sometimes I feel a little different um, as a dietitian. I feel like my perspective isn't always mainstream, and um, this is why. So I first became interested in uh, nutrition I, I, around the same time I was learning to cook for myself in college. You know, a lot of us, um, that's our college years are kind of when we first are learning how to just cook and meal plan and um figure that stuff out for ourselves. And I fell in love with cooking when I was like 19 or 20 years old and got my first apartment and watched the Food Network and (laughs) would follow along with the recipes and stuff. And so I didn't go into nutrition as a career um, because I was sort of into health and fitness. I went into it because I was into food. So I thought maybe I'd go to culinary school or something. But what ended up happening was when I finished my undergrad degree, I got accepted to kind of the next step in a nutrition program, you can't really do much with just a nutrition bachelor's um, without actually becoming a registered dietitian. So the next step is to do uh, what's called a dietetic internship that's always in conjunction with a major um, like medical center. And I got accepted to Vanderbilt University Medical Center's internship program, which was really life-changing. Um, and I've talked about it before as being a, a program where I was with a bunch of really cool, awesome women for the first time. And it was completely run um, by women and all of my, most of my peers were women. And so it was a great experience in that regard. But that was where I also learned like the science of food and how we can use nutrition to manage like disease states and illnesses and things like that. And I saw how wrong our popular culture and media often gets nutrition information (laughs) for a lot of reasons. But what I also learned a a lot about was sort of myself and my skills as um, 
as a dietitian during my um, so during the internship in my first job afterward, which was working for um, Food Stamp Nutrition Education Program for the University of Tennessee in Nashville. And at that job, um, so food stamp nutrition education, what a lot of people don't know is that folks who qualify for food stamps, which is also called SNAP, Supplementary Nutrition Assistance Program. So people who qualify for food stamps also qualify for um, like nutrition education um, on how to like best stretch their food dollars and make the healthiest decisions they can with with their um, SNAP benefits. And so I learned that like my skills and interests as a dietitian really lie in connecting people to the resources that they need to live their fullest lives. And at that time in my career, all of that revolved around food and nutrition. And now it's kind of more like women's health and reproductive health, but it's all tied together for me. Mm-hmm. And um, so my job in a nutshell back then was to educate families on how to stretch their food dollars and um, make the healthiest choices they could. And then when I moved back to Mississippi, I was working mostly, um, I was doing diabetes uh education and counseling and weight management counseling for individuals and groups uh, who were low income or didn't have health insurance. So over the course of my career, my eyes were really open to the systems that make it hard for people to prioritize their health. Systems of poverty that force people to make really difficult choices between buying healthy food or paying their electric bill. Um, Systems of racism, like I saw in Nashville, you know, and a lot of bigger cities, uh, historically push people of color into low-income neighborhoods that are cut off from grocery stores where you can buy healthy food or farmers markets or green spaces safe places to be outside and be physically active and those are um so when you're like cut off from healthy food options you're it's a phenomenon called a food desert which are all over the country and on top of all of that we have this beauty and fitness culture that equates health with thinness that's all you ever hear from like our mainstream media is that healthy equals thin. And our concept of wellness has become really distorted into something that rich white ladies can buy from Gwyneth Paltrow's website. <laughs> Goop. Isn't it Goop? Goop. <laughs> Goop. Yes. I've never been to that website, but I've heard of oh, it. I've been. It's a it's a spectacle. <laughs> <laughs> Not a sponsor of this podcast. <laughs> no. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and um, this is just a topic that gets me really fired up um, because I really saw firsthand, you know, we've got this concept, this idea in our country that goes hand in hand with the bootstrap mentality. You know, that your future is and your destiny is all within your control if you just do the right things and are smart enough and try hard enough. And we apply that to health. Like, If you're just smart enough and try hard enough and want it bad enough, your health is completely within your control. And there's some truth to that. We do have some control over the choices that we make every day, like whether or not to take the stairs instead of the elevator or whether or not to start smoking. You know, we do have a measure of control over the choices that we make. But things like whether we have health insurance, do we live in a safe neighborhood where we can walk outside um, with a grocery store that carries affordable, healthy food, those things aren't always in our control. So for me, until we have equitable systems of healthcare, education, financial support, where everybody has access to the resources that they need to thrive, this idea of wellness will continue to just be a hobby for rich people and largely out of reach for poor people. And so that's what makes me a little bit different as a dietitian. <laughs> Sometimes not always in the mainstream. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, preach, right? 
It reminds me <laughs> yeah. of there's some parallels to the whole mythology of the American dream. And we focus on individual success stories and people who manage to go yep. from the rags to riches. Or we sensationalize weight loss with the yep. Biggest Loser franchise or, you know, other shows like that. They're that all about individual success stories. And mm-hmm. we know often those folks go home and just gain all the weight back. And yet mm-hmm. we're addicted to these ideas that, well, I will be the exception. I will rise yeah. above. I can deal with, you know, whatever comes my way if I'm just determined enough. That's yep. the key factor. And you've rightly pointed out about so many systemic issues of oppression that this is not about your individual willpower. Right. These are about systems that have been designed to keep some people out of accessing what they need to live fulfilling healthy lives for sure Mm -hmm. and one thing that I was thinking about that's related to that is um, you know about the cost of food particularly as you feed your children um, because I have a three-year-old and we're going through you know she's asserting herself and some food just doesn't taste that great to her and so we end up just throwing out a bunch of stuff which is frustrating but for us it's not an economic issue. It's more just the principle of it. And last year I read an op-ed in the New York Times called A Hidden Cost to Giving Kids Their Vegetables. Hmm. It was written by this woman named Caitlin Daniel, and she spent two years working with families in Boston to see how they fed their kids. And she looked at people of all different economic backgrounds. And what she heard from poor families who, you know, were living paycheck to paycheck, who relied on food stamps, was that they couldn't afford to experiment with food that they weren't sure that their younger children would eat. So splurging on a pint of strawberries or something or, you know, getting trying a new vegetable, if their kid didn't eat it, that meant that food went to waste and someone might not eat that night or later that month because they wouldn't be able to stretch out their food dollars. And so they have to make decisions about whether or not they're going to like get a food that they know their kids are going to eat. Yeah. So that is absolutely true. I am from my experience counseling families. That is um, I heard that word for word out of the mouths of parents who um, really had to do that like dance of their food dollars were really tight. And so buying buying food, they didn't know how to cook or they weren't sure that their kids were going to like, just a, it was a total no-go because it was a waste of money and um, they truly couldn't afford it. That is, that's really real. Right. And the most inexpensive foods are shelf-stable processed yep. carbs that, you know, yep. tend to taste pretty good. Um, yep. Whereas <laughs> yeah, fresh vegetables, that way. <laughs> yeah, fresh vegetables and, and fruit, they go bad quickly. You have to prepare them in a way that people like and there's a lot of yep. skill involved and prep time involved. And time. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really important thing for us to be mindful of. And it hadn't really occurred to me until I read that piece that, wow, this is not just about a parental frustration. This is really about surviving. Yeah. And it's a justice issue. For it really sure. is. And for those of us who do have financial resources, like the the rich white ladies you were talking about, uh, <laughs> the diet and fitness culture loves to target us with different yeah. ways to spend our money to get healthy. 
And we've talked about it a, a little bit already, but there's just so much coded language now for what is really the, the same old mm-hmm. thing, the same old yep. diet and fitness culture um, that's been around for decades. Like we don't call it diet anymore. Um, yep. We call it wellness and clean eating. Yep. That one gets to me. Clean eating. <laughs> Because if you're not eating kale, you're what? Dirty eating? Right. You're dirty I mean- <laughs> eating. Or the or like whole foods, whole 30. Yeah. Um, you know, these are really still about like restricting and controlling what you eat, just like every yes. other diet. Um, and mm. they're really pricey. And I thought about this time when um, this is before we had kids, but my husband and I were out. We had got we just had like a super indulgent weekend, and we just felt so bad. We were like, we're we're gonna try the like juice thing. So we bought a juicer, and then we bought <laughs> we went to Costco and bought like all of the fruits and vegetables that you have to buy, which is insane because you're yeah. just consuming juice. It was so stupid. Like, it was so expensive <laughs> and so stupid, but. Since we're confessing, I thought I would confess that too. But that's another thing where it's like the whole juice juice fad and how much those cost. You can order them and have them sent to your house. I mean, it's just it's just really insane. And you're not getting that much nutrition. But like we can afford to do that because we have excessive income. Um, but going back to the language, I was thinking even phrases that we hear on the surface that sound kind of empowering, like strong is the new skinny, which was popular mm-hmm. a couple years ago. You know, it still rubs me the wrong way because it's still about – changing our bodies to fit unrealistic standards. And I was looking at this article that psychologist Alexis Connison, de- de- where she decoded this kind of language in a piece she wrote for Psychology Today. And she said, there's been a backlash against the impossible, impossibly thin body ideals portrayed in the media, but lest we ponder accepting our bodies and where is the money to be made in that, we have been given a new impossible ideal to meet. Thinspo or thinspiration has been replaced with fitspo, fitspiration. Mm-hmm. No amount of fitness seems to be too much. Tell a friend you're doing soul cycle bar class and hot yoga all in one afternoon and no one blinks an eye. Crap yourself doing CrossFit. <laughs> that was a good workout. Consume nothing but green juice for a week. Okay, that was to us. Your body needed that cleanse. We are on an endless pursuit of health and we'll do a whole lot of unhealthy things to get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that last sentence really gets at what we're talking about, risking our health to be healthy. And yep. like the article said, it's such an extreme way of looking at our lives. Like either we're healthy or we're unhealthy. If we're healthy, we're good. If we're unhealthy, we're bad. Some food is good mm-hmm. and virtuous to eat. Other food's bad, which makes you gluttonous for eating it. And um, it's really culturally acceptable and even expected, particularly that women express mm-hmm. guilt and remorse over daring to eat something that's unhealthy or justifying it somehow, you know, oh, I went on a long walk today or I went to yoga class. Um, and generally we do this not because of the way that it makes us feel physically, but how we feel emotionally about ourselves for having eaten that food. Uh, and we don't give ourselves the permission to enjoy our food without guilt um, because we're not allowed to enjoy our bodies without guilt. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're so right. And while you were saying, you said, um, you know, we risk our health to be healthy. Oh, that's such a true statement. And I would even add, we risk our mental health to be healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, All of that emotional baggage we carry around food, all of the, um, the like, guilt we give ourselves and I'll confess I uh this it was last it was last year it was like last January um my husband and I kind of overindulged during the holidays and so I thought what well, maybe I'll just like reset my diet with um 
and try Whole30. And I made it four days. <laughs> what What did you miss so much? Like, and what it, were you – what What about it were you like, I got to have this food back? Or – It wasn't so much about which food – well, there is – I mean, it is just like this very rigid list of things you can and can't have. But for me, it was the um, constant thinking about food – you have to really meal plan. Mm-hmm. Like you're constantly, in order to do a diet that that's restrictive, you have to really be thinking about food a lot. And I was like analyzing every decision I make. Like, is this Whole30 approved? Is this not Whole30 approved? And how do I, um, I mean, it was just the the mental like baggage of just knowing that when I woke up that day, I was going to have this really strict set of rules to follow all day. I just yeah. couldn't do it. And I've learned about myself. Like I can't um, – I am definitely a moderation kind of person and I don't own a scale. I don't um, have like rules about what I what I eat really um, that have to do with, with like health or anything like that. Um, and I, I mean I have body issues and hang-ups and um, food issues just like anybody else. But I – those get worse for me. And for my like anxiety and stuff, when the more I control, the crazier I feel mm. around food. And so I just have to not control it. Um, that's really been the best, the best, healthiest thing for me, which is kind of a tangent. But um, but I, that really uh, <laughs> that resonated with me a lot that we do healthy things uh, or unhealthy things to ourselves in the mm-hmm. name of health. And that for me, controlling food is an yeah, unhealthy for thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, and something that really troubles me is that we don't even have a solid, like shared understanding of what healthy even means, you know, and being part of the health, um, like being a health professional, I've seen it in the medical community. Um, medical professionals contribute to this too. Doctors, nurses, even dietitians. We're just as susceptible to our country's like thin equals healthy ideal as non-medical people are. And um, like you said, there's a lot of unhealthy paths to get to quote unquote health and wellness. Um, But coming back to what you mentioned about like good and bad foods, that is something that (laughs) really gets me. The value judgment that we place on health, including like eating and exercise is a huge problem for me because in our culture, we equate health not only with being good, but also with being moral or like virtuous Mm -hmm. or even like worthy of affection and love. Which means that people who are, quote, unhealthy or who appear to be unhealthy because we think we can tell if someone's healthy or not just by looking at them. So people who appear unhealthy are bad or immoral or unworthy of respect and affection and love. And because we've decided as a culture that thin equals healthy and we think we can tell if someone's healthy just Mm -hmm. by looking at them, we've decided that people who aren't thin aren't healthy And all of that contributes to a really troubling form of stigma that is called weight stigma or fat stigma, which fat stigma is really complex um, because it's kind of a chicken and an egg situation. We live in a culture that elevates thinness, favors thinness above all else, and we treat people who aren't thin really Mm -hmm. badly as a culture and as individuals. We judge people's eating habits and their clothing choices. We shame people for taking up too much space in public spaces. We blame them for raising healthcare costs. We call it an epidemic. Um, 
And we're all very aware of how our culture does this. Our eyes are all open to this. We can all see how being overweight in this culture gets you treated. And so we're all terrified of gaining weight because we know we'll get treated badly right. if we do. So we take that fear and we project it onto overweight people, thus treating them badly, which just reinforces the cycle all over again. So I think it's really important that as we pursue wellness and participate in wellness culture, that we don't also contribute to fat shaming and stigma. There's nothing wrong with pursuing health and making healthy choices, making the healthiest choices that we can as individuals, but there's a lot wrong when we take our choices and our personal health goals and we make them a benchmark by which we judge other people. Mm -hmm. It's just something that has always bothered me about diet and fitness culture, um, that what works for me is not necessarily what's going to work for you. And um, what I, uh, like my priorities and goals are not the same as yours. And that that all needs to be mm-hmm. okay. So I recently finished um, Roxanne Gay's novel, Hunger, that you, um, or I guess book of essays, uh, that you recommended a few episodes ago. It was so good. I think everybody should read it. Um, but she tackles the concept of weight stigma really well. And there's a passage, uh, a short passage that I would like to read. Um, and this is chapter 31. And I think it just describes like weight stigma really well. So she says, when you're overweight, your body becomes a matter of public record in many respects. Your body is constantly and prominently on display. People project assumed narratives onto your body and are not at all interested in the truth of your body, whatever that truth might be. Mm. Fat, much like skin color, is something you cannot hide, no matter how dark the clothing you wear or how diligently you avoid horizontal stripes. You may become very adept at playing the role of wallflower. You may learn how to be the life of the party so that people are too busy laughing at you or with you to focus on the elephant in the room. You may do whatever you have to do to survive a world that has little patience or compassion for a body like yours. Regardless of what you do, your body is the subject of public discourse with family, friends, and strangers alike. Your body is subject to commentary when you gain weight, lose weight, or maintain your unacceptable weight. People are quick to offer you statistics and information about the dangers of obesity, as if you're not only fat, but also incredibly stupid, unaware, delusional about the realities of your body, in a world that is vigorously inhospitable to that body. This commentary is often couched as concern, as people only having your best interests at heart. They forget that you're a person. You are your body, nothing more, and your body should damn well become less. Mm. I read that on an airplane and, like, wanted to scream and couldn't. And it just... There's something so true and so powerful in what she says. And I think it's, for me, um, that fear of dealing with everything she just described. It's so real and um, just really contributes to that, that stigma. You know, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, like we're, we're all kind of complicit in this society that that um perpetuates this problem yeah oh I mean I think what's so sad about her memoir is her own internalization 
of the fat phobia and how much it impacts her life. Um, It's, it is really, it is really powerful because I think her story helps all of us have more compassion um, for folks who, who walk around in bodies that are the source of, of judgment and disdain. Um, I mean, you can see it like, especially on airplanes, right? Like, yeah, I don't want to sit next to the fat person. (laughs) Um, yep. So just to have the pain of that be so raw and, and, and truthful. And when she was talking about like hiding the truth of your body, I don't know that phrase really sticks out to me of just like people are yeah. just perceiving a lie about who I am just because of how I look and they don't know why I am this way. They don't know anything else about me, but they've already made a judgment about who I am and how smart I am or what I have to offer them. Like that's just so incredibly cruel. Yeah. And it just goes against everything that I believe about who we are as human beings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you sum it up really well. <laughs> and, um, you know, shifting gears a little bit toward our faith. When we think about how our faith communities might shape our understanding of our bodies and what we eat and how we move, um, what are your thoughts? Do you think the church helps us combat the message we hear in popular culture or do you think it reinforces them? My experience of church is that is not very prophetic in this area. Like, like many other areas, at least the faith communities that I've been part of. And in thinking about, did I get any messages about this at church, about food and fitness? Um, Not really. They weren't explicit, but I definitely got a lot of implicit messages. And I was thinking about how so many of the activities that we did at church that weren't worship revolved around food. Yes. (laughs) And typically revolved around food that's not optimal for your health um so it's called the methodist potluck dinner if you don't know what that is (laughs) the potluck dinner oh my goodness um we always had like ice cream socials and fried chicken dinners um you know stuff like that and i thought about how in youth group we had dinner every week and it was always like pizza or tacos so (laughs) there was always a lot of food same and none of it was very very healthy so i think there was a lot of like pleasure in food at church um and I guess that's a good thing (laughs) yeah I think it's a good I think it's a good thing um but I think revolving or centering a lot of activity around food is problematic and you know I don't know what they would be doing now but that just seems to be a thing especially now as people have like so many more dietary restrictions um, yeah, you know, there's lots of other things that we can do together besides eat. I don't want to say we take away eating because I think eating together is really important. But yeah, um, same having some options available would be would be good. I mean, fried chicken is that's a lot. That's intense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have a I, and I think there's like space to bring alternatives to food. Like you can have community around movement as well mm-hmm. without making it about being um, about exercising. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a colleague who is a pastor who is known as the yoga pastor Mm -hmm. and she has, um, some like meditative yoga classes that she, that she teaches, um, with people in her congregation. There's a way you can sort of like bring joy of movement, joy of eating, like all of that stuff. You can bring that into 
faith spaces without um, making it part of wellness culture and, and like diet diet culture too. But yeah, anyway, that's just so true. one you know one thought I've had. Yeah, yeah. What are the other creative ways that we can get together that maybe food is a component but isn't the focus? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like that, uh, and I think the meditation practice you were talking about is really a great one of, you know, being together and focusing on something together and learning something together. That's good for us on lots of different levels. That would be, we never had meditation at my church. I can remember. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. So if <laughs> Neither I, did we. So the implicit messages I got were definitely teamed up with explicit messages I got about the body in general, just being a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so I was thinking about different songs that we would sing because I was in a praise band. That's another confession. There's also confessions in this episode. Uh, so I was in a <laughs> praise band for a while. And um, one of the songs I thought of, one of the lines is, my spirit is willing, but my flesh is so weak. And it goes mm-hmm. back to that whole mm-hmm. idea of like willpower. And, you know, if only I had enough, I could conquer this body of mine. Uh, and yeah. I thought back to our episode on dress codes and purity culture um, but I was told pretty explicitly that my body was a temptation that needed to be covered yeah. up and controlled. And there's a very logical leap from that of feeling bad about having a body that tempts someone else to just feeling bad about having a body, period. Yep, definitely. And so I was thinking about, like, how has the church been more explicitly involved in diet and fitness culture? And so I was doing some research, and I remembered that a colleague of my husband's had done this thing called the Daniel Plan. Have you heard of this? <laughs> yes. Go on. <laughs> well, first, first red flag is it was created by Rick Warren. Yes, that is the first red flag. <laughs> yeah. If you don't know who Rick Warren is, he is the pastor of Saddleback Church an author of The Purpose Driven Life. Um, And yeah, just, I mean, if you want to, you can Google him. We don't recommend it, but just take our word for it. You don't want to get mixed up with Rick Warren. Yeah, if you want to learn how to use scripture to make a lot of money, I guess you do want to get mixed up with Rick Warren. But anyway. Exactly. (laughs) So he he put this diet together um, based on some scriptures from the book of Daniel where it's basically a vegetarian and an alcohol-free diet. So I thought I would read the passage from the book of Daniel where they got the inspiration. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the church official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. At the end of the ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. I'm sorry, I'm laughing. I mean, so I just silly. can't. <laughs> oh my goodness, just reading it so funny. <sighs> um, so <laughs> the tenets of the diet are pretty much, you know, the same as any other diet. But with the addition of, quote unquote, like relying on God's power. Oh, yes. So... <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's really, really troubling, this whole thing. And I'm sure you've got some thoughts on the Daniels diets. So I had not heard of this until recently, but yes, I have heard of it. And my mom actually asked me about it not too long ago because somebody she knows is doing it. And of course, I was like, no, I don't know what that is. And she um, kind of gave me the rundown and I was just stunned. I was like, oh. so I generally hate to see scripture used like this in where we take it out of context. We use it in a prescriptive way, like mm -hmm. follow this passage to the letter and your life will improve. It reminds me of, do you remember the prayer of Jabez? That was going yes. around in the 90s. Someone bought me that book. Oh, yes. Yeah. Somebody bought me the book of Jabez, the prayer of Jabez for teens. I remember when I was like 18 course, years old. You can't read the same scripture <laughs> I know. as I know. the adults. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, it was this very obscure passage in the Bible, um, in the Old Testament. And it was the prayer of this man named Jabez. And he prayed these like two lines like he asked God to bless him and enlarge his territory and that prayer was turned into a book and it was sold as this like miracle prayer that if you prayed it enough it would make you rich <laughs> and it would make your church grow of course and the Daniel diet just it it feels the same um it's got that same kind of opportunistic like mass marketability <laughs> to me mm -hmm. Just follow this specific Bible passage that happens to be about food, and God will give you health and wellness. <laughs> Never mind that later on in the New Testament, Jesus turned water into wine so guests at a wedding could celebrate together and be with one another in fellowship. Of course. Although, did you see there's someone recently who showed a children's Bible story book where they said that Jesus turned the wine into grape juice? <laughs> no, <laughs> I have not seen that. But anyway, side note. It we'll link to it in the show me. notes. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> and to me, it's just one more example of it all comes down to willpower and just bootstrapping our faith, right? Just mm -hmm. follow this plan, do this diet, say this prayer, try hard enough, and you will find favor with God, and your proof will be your weight loss and good health. It's just... <laughs> The opposite of what I believe, that God loves and accepts us all just as we are, that we're all worthy and loved in our imperfection, that we don't have to seek an ideal before we are worthy of of love from other people and love from God. Like it just, it just goes against everything I believe. Um, and I don't know if you picked up on this, but I certainly did. Um, the passage you read focuses on appearance as a marker mm -hmm. of health. Compare our appearance with that of the other young men. And after 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than the other guys. I mean, I guess you could make the argument that they didn't know about like blood pressure or <laughs> blood sugar or whatever in the Old right. Testament. But we do now. And I still I think it's a dangerous message to highlight today that reinforces our culture's already a toxic obsession with appearance and how we conflate thinness with health like it's just <laughs> it's just so much wrong with it <laughs> yeah that is such a good point and it just shows that the daniel plan is just part of capitalistic yes. endeavors to make money yes. and it reinforces so it has to reinforce all of the existing diet and fitness culture which yes. is super toxic 
And even worse, it adds a layer of religiosity to it. So if you mm-hmm. fail at, Dan- at the Daniel diet, you're failing God too, not just yourself, <laughs> but you're <laughs> you. failing God too. Yes, um, it's terrible. I know. So I was going to quote my good friend Elizabeth. She always says, honest to Ethel. <laughs> I just feel like that's an appropriate thing to say here. Honest to Ethel, folks. Like, come on. Instead of so, like, honest to God, she says, honest to Ethel. Ethel is one of her names for the Holy Spirit. Oh, I love it. She has lots of different um, women's names for Holy Spirit that she's learned from different cultures. So I'll talk about that. I'll have, we'll have to have Elizabeth on sometime. She's amazing. Oh, um, yes, definitely. <laughs> but so I guess what I want to say as someone who is on the ordination track about to be ordained to everybody listening is that you are created in the image of God and you are a beloved child of the divine and you have inherent sacred worth just as you are and you are good enough. So I just want everyone to hear that. It's the truth. So I won't swear, but F the rest of that BS. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we don't have an explicit rating for this podcast. We we have to keep it PG. (laughs) (laughs) So that was such a good conversation. And uh, there's just so much more to say. But um, let's, let's go ahead and switch gears and talk about what we're reading and what we're listening to. I've got a podcast I'm looking forward to sharing about that's definitely connected. But Ashley, you've got a book you want to tell us about that you've been I reading. I do. I do. And it's not, it doesn't really go with like the theme of, of wellness and stuff that we've been talking about today, but I'm really excited to talk about it um, because I just read it recently and it is so good and I want everybody to go out and buy a copy. Um, it's called The Hate You Give and it's written by a Mississippi author, Angie Thomas. She uh, lives in Jackson. She went to Bellhaven. And, um, she has written, so The Hate You Give is a young adult novel. It's written from the perspective of a black teenage girl who is the only witness to a police shooting of her best friend who is a black teenage boy. Mm. And the story parallels the all too real narratives of police shootings of unarmed black men, um, which is what inspired the author to write the story. And um, the main character lives in a poor black neighborhood, but she goes to an all-white private school on the other side of town. And so she has to navigate kind of both worlds as she's Mm. on top of dealing with the trauma of watching her best friend um, murder. And so um, it's a great – it's an engrossing read. It's a a really, um, uh, I guess, a poignant story. It's just really relevant right now. Um, And it's also about to be made into a movie. With a really amazing cast. Amanda Stanberg is the lead actress. She was Rue from Hunger Games. Uh-huh. And she's also a, a really uh, great activist as well. Um, she's going to play the main character along with um, Anthony Mackie. Issa Rae is in it. A whole bunch of really other talented people. So pick up The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas soon before the movie comes out. I'm so glad you mentioned this. It's on my list. I didn't really know what it was about, but I try oh, to always... So good. I saw it was on like all of these bestsellers and best books of 2017. So I added it and I'm really glad to know what it's about. Um, I'm on the list for the library. So hopefully I'll get my copy soon too and can't wait to talk with you about it. I have been listening to a podcast called She's All Fat, which I heard on Call Your Girlfriend, another favorite podcast of ours. And their tagline is, 
the podcast for body positivity, radical self-love, and chill vibes only. I love love that. (laughs) Chill vibes only. Uh, The co-hosts are Sophie and April, and they're so funny and smart. They have a great – they record together physically in the same place, so you really get, like, the must be nice. I know. I know. (laughs) We're the long-distance podcasters, like so many people, but they're together, so they just have this great exchange between the two of them. And they're just refreshingly unapologetic about their bodies. I love that about them. Um, And they cover topics like plus-size fashion, the depiction of fat people in film and TV, radical self-love, of course. And I especially loved their episode with Gabby Gregg, who goes by the name Gabby Fresh on Instagram, who's a plus-size model, style blogger, fashion designer. She makes a lot of different kinds of clothing, including swimwear and lingerie for plus-size Awesome. So definitely give it a listen. Again, that's She's All Fat podcast. I can't wait to check that out. I haven't heard of it before, so I'm that's going on the list right away. Yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. So, Ashley, you are up for this episode's Kindreds of the Moment. Yes. So, I am excited. I want to lift up the work of Dr. Linda Bacon. She is the founder of the concept and movement, basically, called Health at Every Size. She, uh, Dr. Bacon, has spent her career really digging into and unpacking the science, the stereotypes, the assumptions behind weight loss and dieting. And in her book, Health at Every Size, The Surprising Truth About Your Weight, she explores the assumptions we hold about how to lose weight and why we lose weight and whether weight loss actually leads to better health. And she developed the concept of health at every size, which is what I practiced as a dietitian. It's the idea that we can adopt healthy lifestyle habits and find joy in movement and food and taking care of our bodies and pursue health-related goals without making weight loss or a number on the scale the ultimate focus of our effort. And it goes along with the idea of body acceptance, that we shouldn't be trying to force our body to look a certain way before we can love and honor it. And she also does a lot to combat uh, weight stigma. And I'll say this from my experience as a dietitian, health at every size is not really the mainstream approach to um, nutrition counseling. So if you want to find a nutrition professional that follows a health at every size, like non-diet approach to health, there's a search tool at the website for the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health, which we will link to in the show notes on our website, kindredspodcast.com for this uh, episode. And if you're interested in just learning more about Health at Every Size, check out the book, Health at Every Size, and also Dr. Bacon's book, Body Respect. And you can also visit her website at lindabacon.org. So thanks, Dr. Bacon, for all you do. That's our kindreds of the moment. Oh, I love that. I've heard of the movement, but I didn't know who was behind it. And I love that there's a tool to find a nutrition professional that follows that, because I think that keeps a lot of folks from getting the counseling they they want or need because yeah. of their their fear of what kind of stigma they're going to um, get when they contact somebody. So we'll we'll link to that in the show notes for sure. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing about that. So that's the end of today's episode. And next time we will continue our conversation about bodies, but we'll be focusing on pregnancy, parenting, and paid family leave because one of us has a very big announcement to make next time. So you'll want to tune in for that. Definitely come back next episode. So, Katie, I will talk to you then. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. 
You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 